family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find with me the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Whether you're watching online or you're here with us live, whether you have an app on your device or a printed copy, as I highly encourage you to bring to church, I want you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. And when you find the sixth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like to draw your attention and preach by God's grace from verses 9 down through verse 11. Only three verses, but for those of you who are not uh, new to our church, you know that that does not mean there's any hope that this will be a short message. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. We've been in a series called Do You Not Know? Those aren't my words. They're the Apostle Paul's words. He said them. He repeated this rhetorical question seven times in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, the pattern of our preaching ministry is to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. That's what we've been doing in 1 Corinthians for the last few months. And we find ourselves in this series in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and it is a scandalous series. This is a series where Paul, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, specifically deals with some of the sin that had infiltrated the church in Corinth. Corinth was a sinful place. In fact, commentators often call it carnal Corinth. It was known worldwide as a place of hedonism, as a place of intense idolatry, as an over-sexualized, salacious place. However, the gospel penetrated that. The gospel came into Corinth through Paul and others, and people were saved. Their lives were changed. They repented. They turned. They no longer walked in the way of the pagan, but they began to walk in the way of Jesus. They were from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicity. They were as different as night and day, and yet they all came together and they formed this church. And Paul was their church planter, the apostle. He left and once he left, word got back to him that though the church still existed and though he was still grateful for them, some in the church had begun to live according to their old life. Others in the church had not necessarily begun to live in an immoral way, in an ungodly way, but they tolerated it. They became indifferent to it. And so Paul takes aim at that. And he does so with the firm hand of an apostle as he reminds them Things are supposed to be different. We're not free from the presence of sin in this life, but as a Christian, we should be free from the power of sin. It should not be ruling and reigning in our hearts. And so, seven times in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he says, do you not know? He's reminding them of the truth he had given them. You know, it matters that you and I be reminded of what we do know. Sometimes when you're facing a decision and you're not sure what to do, a friend who's wise will come to you and say, hey, let's back up and let's go over what we do know. When I don't know something, it's an important thing for me to take a step back and say, well, let me be reminded of what I do know because I can't base a decision on what I don't know. But if I'm at a crossroads, if I'm facing a dilemma, often it is very wise for me to back up and say, let me be reminded of what I know. And for us as a church, a church that lives in a modern-day Corinth, 
it's important for us to be reminded of what we know. And Paul, coming out of the discussion of sexual sin, and then as we saw last week, frivolous, sinful lawsuits among Christians where they were dragging one another outside of the church and into the legal system of the Greco-Roman world to the end that they would abuse and hurt others, he then bridges back into the discussion of sexual purity. We'll jump back into that next week with this discussion that we come to today in verses 9 and verses 10 and verses 11. And if anything, this is the basis of the gospel in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And what he does is he says, let me remind you of what we know. This is what we know. Let me read this passage to you aloud. I would encourage you to read along with me silently. Look at the words of God as you hear the word of God preached. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Four truths you know, but you need to be reminded that you know. Number one, God does make exclusions. God does exclude people. Now, I think this is important because we are a church that absolutely, positively, with great confidence, celebrates the love of God for humanity. I can say to any person, God loves you and he made you in his image. I can say to any human being, regardless of their religion, Regardless of their race, regardless of their worldview, I can say to any religion, any race, any person, the God of heaven not only loves you, he made you in his image, and he loved you so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for you. However, in our effort to be warm and to be gracious and to be kind, a risk we run if we are not informed by the full breadth of God's word, is that we begin to function as universalists. Universalism is a religion. It is the religion that acknowledges the existence of God in some spiritual form, you define what that is, and that ultimately every person inherits eternal life with God. This is what universalists believe. In fact, there is a universalist Unitarian church in our community, Unitarian Universalism. It is a religion that embraces all religions as equally right. We believe every religion, to the end that it does not harm a human being, has an equal right to exist. We believe in freedom of religion. We certainly don't believe someone should be persecuted because of their faith, as long as their faith does not attempt to hurt or harm another individual or a group when it goes over on the edge of hurting and harming and manipulating. We and many others in our society quantify that as a cult. 
But we certainly believe in the separation of church and state and the freedom of religion. We don't believe that a human being, no matter how powerful, can force individuals to convert to Christianity. We certainly don't affirm that. In fact, I would never encourage that because I cannot force faith on you. But in our effort to communicate the love of God for the world, it's important for us to remember that God does exclude people from his kingdom. There will be people who are not in the kingdom of God. There is a real heaven and a real hell today, and people are really there. And Paul is in this discussion about lawsuits in verse 7 when he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So in this discussion of lawsuits and a few weeks ago sexual sin, Paul is taking aim at the behavior. He's saying your behavior looks more like Corinth than it does a Christian. And so he wants to remind them that there is a deep divide between those who know the Lord and those who do not know the Lord. It is not a divide based on race, ethnicity, demographic status. It's not a divide based on intelligence or natural ability. It's not a divide based on the color of your skin or how much money is in your bank account. It's not a divide based on the century you were born in. It's not a divide based on your gender. It's not a divide based on your struggles or the sins that you have committed. No, no, no. The divide is whether or not you inherit the kingdom of God when you die or he returns. And verse 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not? In the original language, this is a type of term that communicates an eternal permanent state. In other words, there is no hope for those who remain unrighteous into death to ever inherit the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the scripture teaches us this in Romans chapter 14. The Bible says these words, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So look at what the kingdom of God is. It's not this physical world. It's the spiritual reality of a coming world, a new heaven and a new earth. And it is of righteousness and peace and joy. Therefore, in the kingdom of God, when it is brought to us, there is no unrighteousness, there is no war or conflict, and there is no sorrow. There is only righteousness and peace and joy. And therefore, Paul is contrasting the church with the world. Now, he's not doing this to judge the world. He has established over and over, it is not our position to judge the world. It is our posture to recognize God leaves us in the world, though we've been declared to be members of the kingdom, so that others may also gain access to the kingdom. But in your state of unrighteousness, you are excluded from heaven, from a new heaven, and from a new earth. What you hear today is so watered down and so filled with the desire to be warm and gracious and kind, but lacking truth, we end up deceiving people. This is why I believe Paul uses the phrase, do not be deceived, 
right after verse 9. Look what the Bible says. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So number one, God does exclude people. Number two, God does offer examples. There's a list here. Look, Look at the list. Do not be deceived. There are nine nouns in the original language. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is important. Look at me. What we have here is a list of nouns, labels. That matters. We don't have a list of activities or actions. This is not a reference to people condemned for ever having sinned. For if the sins of unrighteousness put someone outside of God's grace, no one makes heaven and everyone's in hell. These are people that have not fallen in one of these areas. These are people who are characterized by persistent, willful, and habitual sin contrary to God's will. We'll see that in just a few moments, but this is so important to recognize because so often is it that people look at a list like this and they walk away feeling so unworthy to approach God, they never receive what he offers. The scripture here is very clear, which is why Paul says, do not be deceived. The best way I can describe this is the difference between struggling with a particular sin and choosing to set down and live a certain way with no repentance, no regret, and no remorse. And eventually what happens is you not only fail to regret, repent, or have remorse, you redefine and celebrate the sin you're living in. This is why John said at the end of his life these words, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. When you study 1 John in the original language, this idea of continual, habitual, perpetual, willful, sinful lifestyle. He says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. John uses this beautiful analogy of agriculture. He says, God plants himself in you. We we know that. We know that upon salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And the Holy Spirit works often against the desires of our flesh. And so that war takes place in us. And the longer we live the Christian life, the more we walk by the Spirit, the more that battle is won. And so the sign of maturity in a woman of God or a man of God It's not that they're ever delivered from being tempted or struggling with sin. It's that one victory adds up to another and another and another and another. And so when you come along in their life, and if they've been walking with the Lord for several years, there is a depth and a maturity and a righteousness and a holiness. It's not a legalistic feeling. It's not a feeling as if they live that way to earn the love of God, but rather it is the seed of God birthing righteousness in them. So John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice keep on. 
a Christian can sin. They do it all the time. It's job security for me. You all figured this out. I'd be preaching in an empty room. We absolutely can and do sin. But the pattern of our life is that when we do sin, we know it's sin due to our knowledge of the word, the fellowship of the believers around us who set examples and hold us accountable, but more importantly, the testimony of the Spirit of God working in us. And by the way, when we have the word of God working alongside the Spirit of God in the church that God has ordained, it's a threefold whammy against sin in our life. In fact, when I see people begin to struggle and stray and leave and sin, one of the three, most of the time, three of the three begin to suffer. They move away from the Word of God, they move away from the people of God, and they push away from the voice of God within them. And so when we have the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God, and we are around the people of God, we absolutely can and will fail. But we know we fail. We know we sin. We don't like being there. We feel remorse and regret. And when we do, the natural reaction for a believer is repentance. To say what I did was wrong. I acknowledge it as wrong. I don't justify it. I don't redefine it. Your word has not evolved on it. It was wrong. And therefore, Lord, I come to you claiming the grace that you promise to give any of your children who will call upon your name, confess their sins, and ask for forgiveness. And the blood still flows in its effect on me and anyone who needs the covering of God's grace. So this is the picture of a Christian. But Paul says, here are some examples of people who are not righteous. Now, he lists nine. It's not exhaustive. Some of you are like, well, I'm not on the list. Whew, that's good. He lists nine, but these nine tend to come up over and over again in Scripture because they sort of represent categories of depravity. Now, in order for you and I to get out on time, but for me to try to explain these to you, I've categorized them in the following way. The first he talks about is sexual sin. There are three words in the passage, fornication, adultery, and homosexuality. If you've never understood the meaning of these, let me give it to you in layman's terms. Fornication is specifically sexual sin outside of marriage. And so for two people to be in a sexual relationship who are not married, that is fornication. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is considered fornication. Adultery, of course, is sexual sin that breaks the bond of marriage, whether it be two married people cheating on their spouses, whether it be one married person with a single person, that in and of itself would be an example of adultery and fornication. And homosexuality, well, I don't have to define that for you, but it is what it is. Now, interestingly about this, typically what Christians do is we cherry pick and we scratch out a spot and we pitch a fit especially in conservative evangelical churches, against homosexuality. There is a wrong and a right reason this often happens. 
The wrong reason is for us to choose the sins that may seem distant from most of us, not all of us. Some of you in this room have dealt with and struggled with same-sex attraction, and you may be dealing with it today. Others of you in this room might be living a homosexual lifestyle, and I could not be more happy that you are here today, and you are always welcome to come and hear the Word of God be preached. Statistically, the vast majority of you would say, no, I've never struggled with same-sex attraction, and no, I've never lived in a homosexual relationship. And so what we typically do is we pick the sins that are distant from us, and we go, okay, well, that's what we're going to pick on. Don't mention the other stuff. The vast majority of sexual sin in a conservative evangelical church would be the first two, fornication and adultery. We deal a lot more with that than we deal with homosexuality, though we should be willing to deal with all three. However, one of the reasons it's important to speak to homosexuality is that the culture we live in tends to frown on adultery. Regardless of your view of marriage or who can marry who, most people tend to frown on adultery. Adultery has not been redefined or justified. Yet you and I live in a Corinth. We live in a day and age where now it is politically incorrect to say that God's plan is not for a man to be with a man or a woman to be with a woman. In the New American Standard, there's actually a more accurate translation of this verse, and this is important. This says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. There are actually two Greek words that the ESV translates in the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Ladies, this is not an exclusion of lesbianism. He just chooses to deal with men who practice homosexuality here. But in the original language, that phrase is translated from two Greek words that are translated in the English and the New American Standard, the effeminate or the homosexual, the one receiving the homosexual advances and willfully participating, and the one who is putting forth the homosexual advances. And so often what we find is we live in a culture that is so sexually confused, not only has the sexual relationship between one man and one woman been polluted and corrupted, now we see an assault and an attack on gender. And I hear people say this. Well, things have never been this bad. This is so terrible. Let me remind you of something. Paul wrote during the time of Emperor Nero. You know what history says? Extra biblical history, it's pretty much firmed. It's not anything that some preacher has made up. History tells us that Nero had a wife who died. Rumor was he kicked her to death. But she had a wife who died. However, he fell in love with one of his male servants. He had that servant castrated, made him dress like his wife, and married him in public. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing that you and I see today, Paul would find astonishing. He's seen it all. Go look at the art of the ancient Greek world, if you got the stomach to, and see the over-sexualized world that Paul was trying to deal with. It is the god Aphrodite that had a temple outside of Corinth where temple prostitutes worshipped and lived and would descend into the city as the sun fell to bring willing worshipers back up to the temple for worship. And I will not in any way describe what you can read in history books took place under the guise of worship in the temple of Aphrodite. There is nothing new under the sun. And so what I would say to you and I when we come to this issue of homosexuality, I've taught on it in, in many situations and in many contexts. God's word has not changed. It's not changed on the subject of homosexuality, but neither has his grace. 
This is the thing I think that's so often missing. What do you do with the young person who's sitting in an audience like this and they're struggling with same-sex attraction? What do you do with the person who has a brother or a sister that you love dearly and they have married someone of the same sex? What do you do when you have a neighbor or a loved one you deeply care about and you know they're in a homosexual relationship? You love them. You, you, you recognize that their standing before God is between them and God. You be kind. You be gracious. You be a friend. You never affirm. You never compromise. You never move in the direction of dismissing. But you love them. And you say, but you don't understand how difficult it is. No, I may not understand your situation, but God does. And if God loves that person, and I believe he does, who do you think has the best possible opportunity to share the gospel with them through exhibiting Christ? You. And so Paul lists these sexual sins, but they're not the only sins. He lists spiritual sins too, the sin of idolatry. He says, neither in the second phrase of verse 9, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Some people have wondered, why in the midst of three sexual sins, notice it, immoral, which is fornication, adulterer, and practicing homosexuality, why is idolatry there? Well, it's because of what I just told you. In the Greek world, there was so much of a relationship between people's spirituality and their sexuality. Does that sound familiar? Have you noticed that the movement within our society and our culture bows at the altar of their agenda? It becomes worship for them. It becomes a form of idolatry when people define themselves solely by their sexuality. And then he goes on to say these words, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we have sexual sin, spiritual sin, selfish sin, theft, greed, and swindlers all have this in common. I want and I will take from you substance sin, the drunkard. We tend to have a lot of conviction around sexual sin, but we don't think twice about the functioning alcoholic in our life. Paul says if someone's pattern, they're characterized by being ruled by a substance and there is no regret, there is no remorse. I'm not talking about the person who's willing to go to rehab. I'm not talking about the person who experienced a relapse. I'm not talking about the person who was a drunkard. I'm not talking about the person who has gotten drunk. I'm talking about the person who has the pattern of drunkardness in their life, any substance that controls them. And then, of course, there's the spoken sin, the reviler. Using their words to hurt, to stir up, and to criticize. I've seen some legalistic Christians who are prideful about the lack of sexual sin in their life, who never even look in the direction of alcohol, who would never steal from anybody and take great pride in filling out their taxes correctly. But they are so mean-spirited and angry and judgmental with their words, nobody wants the Jesus they say they love. Paul says when we have a pattern, a characteristic, a persistent, willful label that falls on our lives, we bear witness that we're not truly saved. And here are the examples. So God does exclude people. God does offer examples. But this is where the sun rises on the sermon. 
God does make exceptions too. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. He's just said all these people are not going to make it. And look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Now which is it, Paul? Either all these people who persist in willful, habitual, repeated, unrepentant sin will not make it, will not inherit the kingdom of God, or all of them will. He says, no, 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 but some of you will because that's what you were. Past tense is so important here. Such were some of you. Now, when we think about this passage and we look at it, it reminds us about the church. We know the church is not for the unrighteous. Unrighteous people, unsaved people can come to church. They're here every week. I love it. Tonight, 60 will be baptized because at one point they were unrighteous and then they were given righteousness by Christ. So the doors are open for the unrighteous, but being in the kingdom of God, being a part of the church spiritually is not for the unrighteous. They are excluded. But check this out. The church is not for the righteous either. They don't exist. Jesus even said it this way. Jesus said these words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke records it this way. I have not come, these are the words of Jesus, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I did not come to earth for the righteous. You know why? There aren't any. So if the church is not for the unrighteous, they're excluded. And the church is not for the righteous, they don't exist. And Jesus didn't come for them. Who's the church for? The church is for the unrighteous who've been made righteous. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Where's the old? The old is passed away. The nice we use respectfully when someone dies. We don't say, hey, heard your mama died. We just don't say that. Sorry your dad died. We say, I heard your mother passed away. It's a respectful acknowledgement of the fact that your mother died. Let me tell you what dies in Christ, my old life. It's dead. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He does not just bury the old woman. He gives the new woman a new life. God's grace should astonish us. This is what Paul is doing. Notice that this passage is not to lost people. This is a letter to the church. He's not talking to Corinth. He's not up at the temple of Aphrodite preaching. Paul would not have gone there. He's talking to the church. He's saying, listen, all of those people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, you were with them. And you were not just with them. You were them. That's what you were before the grace of God. And this is a pattern in Scripture. Think about the woman caught in adultery. What did Jesus say to her? Is she not guilty of adultery? That's what the passage says. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, she said, does anyone condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Think about the thief on the cross. Was he a thief? That's how we know him. We don't even get a name. 
other than he is the thief on a cross. That's all he was. The society gave him no name. And when he turned to Christ in faith, what did Jesus say? Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Did he have time to be baptized? No. Did he join church at the mill in Jerusalem? We did have one there. We traced it back. Did he join there? No. There's a thing called landmarkism. You're to look it up. We don't believe it, but it's cool. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The grace of the Lord is astonishing. And when we think about this grace, think about the author of the book. Who wrote this book? Paul, who was Saul the persecutor. And when Saul gets saved, God appeared to Ananias. And he said, Ananias, Lord, I have, Ananias said to the Lord, I heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. God said, Ananias, go see Saul. Ananias said, who? Saul. Saul, Lord? You, you mean Saul who has the authority to lock people up who believe in you, Saul? Are you sure you want me to go see Saul? And God said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. There's never been a reviler of the faith saved more wicked than Saul was. And Saul became Paul. This should astonish us. This should take us back. This is why it breaks my heart when people try to redefine sin, when they try to move off the clear teaching of sin. Because listen to me, any effort to redefine what God calls as sin is an assault on the cross of Christ. What we are saying is, instead of celebrating the greatness of a Savior who died for the depth of my darkness, I would rather wallow in the darkness and say we have new understanding and better spirituality now. Now we know better what makes people happy. Just look at the Corinth you live in. And in the midst of all the confusion and all the chaos, ask yourself a question. Are people really joyful? Do they look joyful? Do they look like they're flourishing? There is an angst among any person who rebels against God and continues in that rebellion, and no amount of temporary pleasure will ever take away that angst. And this is why we understand the exception to God's rule is this. He will not save the unrighteous. There are no righteous, but because of his grace, he will make the unrighteous righteous. How? I'll close. The gospel explains it. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but, might be one of the most important contrasting words there, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Titus says it this way, or Paul says it this way to Titus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There is this beautiful symbolism and connection to baptism here, that when we are baptized outwardly, it represents an inward baptism where we are washed. 
What do you want to do with filthy youngins? My mother would get arrested for this today, but I remember in the little community that we lived in, it was a poor community, and uh, these children were dropped off to church by a family that was unchurched. They'd pull up to the door and the children would unload. And I remember specifically two little girls who were dropped off and they were filthy. If you travel, you find that there are societies that Christians live in where the Christians are not poor, not rich, not wealthy, and never will be because of the oppressive government, because of socialism, because of all the things that oppress people. But just because you don't have a lot doesn't mean you can't keep your children clean. And it bothered my mama to see these babies dirty. So she grabbed those two little girls and she said, you're not going to Sunday school today. She walked them right out to our house. She stripped them naked. She scrubbed them from head to toe, washed their clothes, did their hair, brought them back to church. And when the mama picked them up, she said, look, look how pretty your babies are. Now, we don't do that. Our children's policies won't allow us to do that. <laughs> but my mother, whose name is Bit, Bit don't play. She got no filter. She don't play. When you take something that's dirty and you wash it, it's always more beautiful. When God looked down at the filth of this world, he offered his son to wash you and then to set you apart, sanctified. And all of this is wrapped up in that positional statement to justify you, to be made righteous. The righteousness of Christ is counted unto us who believe. This is why there's four people listening to this sermon today. Whether you're watching, listening online, or you're here with us live, here, here are the four people. There's some of you that are unrighteous. You're in this list, and you don't have any regret. You don't agree. You don't believe I'm telling the truth. The only thing I could ask of you is to look again upon Christ, to look again upon his word, and to hear the truth. If you remain in your sin without repenting, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will die, and you will go to hell. Number two, there are some of you who would say, I'm on that list. That's the pattern of my life. There hasn't been any regret or repentance. I may feel bad for a season, but I haven't really changed. We're still living together. I'm still here. I'm still doing this. But I know I'm wrong, preacher. I would say repent. Be made new. Be saved. It's free because it's already been paid for. God didn't transfer debt. We heard about that this week. He paid it by his blood. There's a third group of you that say, I'm righteous, I'm saved. But like the Corinthian church, I've fallen back. I've dabbled in this or that I've, I've been guilty of this or guilty of that and, and I know it's wrong and today I feel conviction about that friend repent and rededicate come back to the one who saved you your salvation is secure 
But he did not save you to live that way. And the fact that you're here and you're feeling conviction is the evidence that he's not done with you. If he were to judge you for your sin, he could allow it to kill you. But he woke you up this morning. He's not your enemy. Sin is your enemy. And then there are some of you who say, you know, Pastor, I'm righteous. I'm saved. And and to the best of my ability, I, I don't see habitual, willful, perpetual sin. But I've just been reminded today of these truths and how I shouldn't negotiate. And I would just say, allow the Spirit to reinforce them in your heart. And remember what Paul told the Thessalonians about the kingdom of God. He said, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom of glory. Salvation is the invitation. It's already been extended. And if you've received the invitation, you've already had your ticket punched. You are signed. You are sealed. You are delivered from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. You are eternally and perpetually bound to be with God in heaven forever. So walk now worthy of it. In other words, behave. Live now. Live like you believe. Living like you believe means living like you belong. And that is what you and I 